Animaniacs, welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Dave, and I've got a lot of stuff that I've got to throw at you during the intro. You know how busy it is this time of year? Oddly enough, uh, not much of it is Dragon Con related, but today's episode is is Dragon Con related, so I want to be sure and tell you what that's about before I run down uh, our, our busy intro bullet points. Today's episode is an interview with a gentleman named Kirk Thatcher. He has done it all. He is like this amazing pop culture nerdery renaissance man. You're going to be absolutely amazed at the things that he has to share, the stories that he tells, and all of the things that he's been involved with. Uh, but this is, in in theory, this is the first part, and we decided this while we were doing the interview, this is the first part of a two-part interview. Today's episode is about all of the stuff he's done that doesn't directly involve uh, the Muppets puppetry Jim Henson. Because I am supposed to be moderating a panel with Kirk at DragonCon for the puppetry track. Now, as of right now, there's a conflict and I can't do it, but hopefully that will be resolved and everything will be cool because that should be the second part of this interview where we'll get into the Henson years and everything that he's done with puppetry. But we talk about Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. Uh, it's a wide-ranging... This, this uh, He's awesome. He's absolutely amazing. He's a great storyteller. Uh, quite frankly, I, I this was almost like a vacation for me, just because all I would have to do is, is say... Star Trek 4. And boom, we're off to the races with just fascinating stuff. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to him. He was an absolutely wonderful guy. You guys are going to love this episode. But before we get to this wonderful episode, uh, there are a couple of things that I, I've got. I actually had to make a list this time because there's stuff that I just know I have to address. First of all, uh, I said a couple weeks ago, that the August commentary was very exciting. I honestly, at this point, cannot remember if I told you what it was or not yet. But unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, uh, the August commentary, needless commentary, will be postponed until September because I just have too much other great stuff that has to go up in August prior to Dragon Con. Uh, it's just how scheduling worked out. You know, sometimes surprises pop up. Sometimes things happen that I just... I, I, it, I've, I've been very happy with the fact that we've had a commentary monthly basically since the first one, which was Big Trouble in Little China. And even though that wasn't officially a needless commentary, that is where they started. Uh, but but since then, we've had one a month, and we're just we, we have to skip August this year. Uh, I will try to plan a little bit better next year, but you know, we, we do the best we can, but uh, trust me, September's commentary. It's in the can. It's fantastic. I hate that you have to wait for it, but you got to wait for it. Cause we've got so much good stuff happening in August. Uh, okay. Number two, a, a question that I get a lot is so, Hey, 
the Dirty Dirty Con Con Game Game Show Show is no more, and that is correct. Uh, so what what is what's your pal Dana up to? And, and as I spoke of several episodes ago, we are still pals. We do still talk. Everything is very cool. And Dana is involved. One of the many things that she's involved with is a podcast called Dark Ages. Now, this is not a podcast like what you're listening to right now. This is a podcast. Uh, one of the fictional storytelling type pod, like it's like a radio play. And when she was describing it to me, I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. But then I actually went and listened to it and it's awesome. Uh, so here, here is, I, I sent Dana a message and I said, hey, I would love to put over the podcast. I, I would love to put over Dark Ages on the show. Just send me a thing. I, I, I didn't have any idea what it would be. So what I got is a list of bullet points or uh, talking points, as it says, for Dark Ages, which you guys absolutely are going to want to check out. It's so much fun. There are three episodes up now at darkagesshow.com. Let me make sure that's correct. Yes, darkagesshow.com. So here, here are the talking points that I was sent over from the Dark Ages crew. It is high fantasy. It is a workplace comedy. It is an hour long. It is a podcast, better than it has any right to be. Locally sourced, farm-to-table voice actors, free range. Fully sound designed by a professional sound guy. Don't use promo code listener because we don't sell anything. If you hate reading, you'll love this. You've tried Terry Pratchett, now try Very Pratchett. So uh, you you can c- kind of get a sense of the the deal here, but anyway, the after after listening to the first episode, uh, it's very funny. It's very uh, they they create a world very very well. You very quickly know the characters personally. I love Abraxas. He's he's the guy. He's he's the one that uh, I wait for his every line. I thoroughly enjoy the performance. But this is a full cast of tremendously talented voice actors. Telling the story, it is a museum opening with a new exhibit, and obviously, though things don't go as planned, uh, there is a great evil at large that you also get a, a very uh, interesting look at, and a goblin army, which some of the biggest laughs I got were the portrayals of, of the goblin army and, and the way that their commanding officers speak to them. So anyway, darkagesshow.com. They have three episodes up right now. They're they're about monthly. So it's also not like, man, I got to keep up with this thing every week. It's about once a month you get a new episode. So you got you, you very easily can slide it into your your regular podcast listening. So there it is. Uh, our pal Dana is one of the voices on there. Well, several of the voices on there actually. Uh, so check it out. You'll love it. I guarantee you'll have a fun time listening. It was not what I expected. It was better. All right, so darkagesshow.com. Please check it out. The other thing I want to talk about, speaking of the game show, is, no, the, the dirty game show, we're done with it. Uh, it, it we, we accomplished what we wanted to. Uh, you can get that whole story several podcasts to go. Uh, we have a new game show, though. Uh, it is me, Sean, and Oz, who you know, and our amazing cast of volunteers and production assistants and people who just are absolute magic to make this thing happen. 
But it is called The Big Damn Game Show, and it's going to be Saturday night at Dragon Con, 10.30 in the Hyatt International South Ballroom. This is not an adults-only show, but it is a fun show. Uh, So don't worry about like, oh, they're not going to show Hellboy's dick on the screen anymore. That that's not no, we're not. But we're going to have an amazingly fun time. It's just going to be dick free. Uh, So there you go. Big damn game show. There's a Facebook event right now. Please go check it out. Uh, Invite your friends. Say you're going to go. Say you're interested. Whatever it is you do with Facebook events at Dragon Con because we never know exactly what we're going to be able to do. Although I will say right now, as as, uh, you may have figured out from me mentioning the Kirk Thatcher panel, uh, I do have my schedule. I am over... Well, I was initially overbooked until i realized there are two panels that i just cannot do because they conflict with the game show uh so i've but i've got a lot going on and i'm very very excited about it but i don't want to announce too much officially before dragon con themselves have published the schedule so hopefully next week when we start our proper run of uh episodes with the track directors i'll be able to talk about my schedule a little bit more and well we've already recorded for classics tracks and 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 talked about a couple of things but i would imagine by next friday the schedule will be up uh so big damn game show it's going to be awesome we've got prizes we've got all new games uh that are you know i'm not going to say it's family friendly don't don't bring your you know 10 year old or whatever but we're 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 heading for a pg-13 but it's still going to be tons of fun still going to use audience members uh and there's still the opportunity to just hang out have fun and and also for anybody that was there last year for the last uh uh, for the last dragon con edition of of the dirty con game show uh, i know it went long we will not have that problem this year we will be done in, in a timely manner so there you go big damn game show please come out at dragon con saturday night 10 30 okay finally the last bit of business i've got before we get to the amazing kirk thatcher uh, there is a documentary film in the process of being made or, or of being finished i guess about me uh our pal jason c wilson from the stopper episode of the podcast followed me around for a little over a year with a camera and filmed me talking about what I do, filmed me doing what I do. Uh, he was there for all of Dragon Con last year, and it's pretty amazing, and it's great. And you can go to YouTube and look for... Well, if, if you go to my profile anywhere, you'll find... You go to Phantom Troublemaker on Instagram, uh, find Dave West on Facebook. Uh, you, you will find this trailer, but if you Google uh, Troublemaker Movie... You you will probably find the trailer as well. It's from Duck's Paw Productions. Maybe that'll help your Google search. But please go watch this trailer, share it, uh, give me feedback, let me know what you think about it. I'm very, very excited. I'm very, very proud. Uh, Wilson is amazing. Uh, he, he's an Emmy Award winning uh, documentarian. So, I mean, this is, not, uh, this is not me with a GoPro talking to myself for 13 months straight. This is legit, you guys. Uh, it's very important to me, very special to me. So please go check out the trailer for Troublemaker. Uh, coming soon from Duck's Paw Productions. Uh, and actually, I lied. I've got one more thing that I'm very proud of. There is a G.I. Joe book that I contributed to. Uh, it's great. I will have copies of it at Dragon Con. Ask me. Uh, there'll be, I think they're $10. Bucks. Uh, and 
I, it is very difficult for me to say this because it sounds like such a, a thing. Uh, but if you want a copy of the book, find me. Uh, I'll 10 bucks, you get a copy of the book. And, and if you want, I'll sign the book. Uh, that was very difficult to say because it sounds very egotistical to me. But I, I want to put it out there. Like, don't feel like uh, I want to sign it, but that seems weird. I don't know if I just it, it's cool. It's fine. I'll do it if if you want. If you don't want me to sign it, that's fine too. I don't want to ruin your pristine GI Joe book, which, by the way, is an excellent book containing essays from people that are far better known than I am. Uh, and, and it's, it's a good, good read. If you like the needless things podcast where we sit and we talk about the good old days and reminisce and have nostalgia and stuff, that's what this book is. It's just focused on GI Joe, uh, lots of different perspectives, lots of different stories of GI Joe, uh, the original toy line, real American hero, everything in between. It's awesome. It's, it's a really, really good book. So like, even if you don't like me, if you're a GI Joe fan, it's a great book. So you should get it anyway. Uh, all right. All right. I think that's as much as I needed to put over. I hope that I didn't inundate you with too much stuff. Uh, but if I did, I apologize. But now you can sit back, relax, enjoy our pals, the Mystery Men, which, by the way, they still have their GoFundMe going uh, to help out with their new album. So if you go to the mysterymenofsurf.com, you can find out more information about that. And, and if you haven't, for some reason, listened to this show before, then the band that you're about to hear are the mystery men. ahead and start then because uh i have to begin with a request from my mother okay uh this this relates i really get mom requests so i'm really (laughs) curious where this is going uh it's something that i have to ask you about and and as as i just mentioned uh they took me to see jaws 3 in the theater and my mom uh in the 80s took me to see pretty much everything like me and my mom going to the movies was a big part of my childhood and like i got to see all the cool stuff in the theater one of the movies that she took me to see was star trek for the voyage home nice uh i'm a huge star trek fan i get that from my mom Uh, i love all eras of trek but i have a very specific memory of watching that movie and when kirk and spock get on the public (laughs) transit Yes. There's a young man being incredibly obnoxious, playing music so loud that everyone on the bus is just appalled at what's going <laughs> on. And Spock takes action. And when that happened, my mom laughed longer and harder than I think I ever remember her laughing. Uh, she loves that scene like as much as she loves Star Trek. I honestly think that would be in one of her top five scenes ever. Oh, I know. Uh, so, at her request, uh, the first thing I want to ask you about is how in the world did all of that come about? <laughs> sure. Um, well, it's a. I can give you the long version, but the the quick version is well, even the quick version is not that short. Um, I had. Worked at ILM for about two and a half, three years, 
by 1983. I started in 81, so 81, 82, and 83. And in late 83, I decided I was going to go back to college to learn about computer graphics because what became Pixar, I think even then it was called Pixar, was the ILM computer graphics department. And I saw that this is going to take over the business. I mean, you could just tell what they were doing there, and then even as simple as small as simple as it was, was going to change the the face of filmmaking, but particularly special effects. So I went back to UCLA, where I'd already uh, gone for a year, and I decided to focus on animation and computer animation, particularly. But they wouldn't let you touch a computer until you'd done an animation course. So I signed up for the animation uh, class and made some great friends there. And I'd been there for, I think, two semesters. And our TA came by, the, the teacher's assistant, who was like the tech assistant, too. He'd help you out in the computers and the animation stand and all that. And he said, they're looking, uh, Paramount Pictures is looking for an assistant for Leonard Nimoy, who's directing Star Trek Four. He'd already directed three, and he wanted someone on four to be his right-hand guy who had a knowledge of special effects, and so they were going to the universities, and I just left ILM like six months earlier, nine months earlier, and so they said, which, you know, they knew, and so he said, well, I will, you know, would you be interested? I said, yeah, absolutely, so he gave me the number, and I called or whatever, there was no email back then, so I called and met with Leonard, and long story short, at this point, got the job. So I started out as an assistant, and what was amazing was I, I was like tailor-made. There literally wasn't a job I was better suited for because they paid me nothing. I mean, I, the amount of money they wanted to pay and the amount of experience I had. I knew everybody in ILM on first-name basis. Like, I was friends with – when I started, there was only 100 – there was less than 100 people there. So all right, the people right. – yeah. all the guys who ran it, uh, Ken Ralston and Dennis Mirren, were all friends of mine. So Leonard hired me specifically because he felt – on three, that he was given the runaround between producers and effects people. He just didn't know that world at all. And so he wanted someone who could tell him, no, that's baloney, that's not true, you could do it another way, or no, nope, that's absolutely right, it should take that long. He just wanted someone who knew it on his team. Yeah and, yeah. and so I was literally, he paid me out of his salary. I was not a Paramount employee. Well, I guess I was, but I remember my income came out of his overall paycheck, uh, and he wanted that way because he wanted my loyalty to be to him. And so it started with that. So they were on a second version of the script. Uh, another version had been written and been kind of tossed, and they were just starting on the second version. So I started very early on. And Leonard and I became friends very quickly. He had a great sense of humor, and I just, you know, I grew up loving Star Trek. And and uh, I, I wasn't like a goobery fan, but I was a fan. But I didn't, like, you know, wet my pants when I met him. I just thought, what a cool guy. And we just hit it off. Like, I always said he was like a favorite uncle. Now, and, at, that, at that point, had you already kind of been around people in the business and had, had a little... I, I'd worked on I'd worked on uh, Gremlins. Oh, I'd worked on Return of the Jedi. Or Yeah. I'd worked on Jedi for a year and a half. I'd worked on Gremlins, the first one. I'd worked on set on Star Trek Three. In fact, I'd met him. He didn't remember me, but I was... Sure, a, sure. There was the dog, the Klingon dog, and the worms that come out of the coffin in Star Trek Three. I puppeteered. Yes. I'd been on set for like five or six days. I was underneath Chris Lloyd's chair with the dog on my arm, puppeteering the dog. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! The lizard dog. Yeah, this is, these are things I didn't even get credit for. Um, so uh, 
Yeah, I'd already been around oh, the whole Star Wars cast, Carrie and Mark and, and Harrison and, and all those guys. And, um, you know, the cast of Ground. I mean, I'd been around actors. I, I grew up in L.A., and so any kind of, and not that I was super cool, but, you know, I, I mean, I was very excited. I was a huge Star Wars fan. It was, I kind of, you know, blew my mind that I was working on Star Wars, but I knew to be cool around the actors. And, and like, everyone's different. Like, Carrie was kind of fun to party with. Mark was really nice and sweet. He already had a baby boy. Um, actually, now friends with on Facebook, I realized. Um, uh, uh, but, so, and Harrison kind of kept to himself. He had, his sons were, like, two years younger than me. I was only 19 when I was doing uh, Jedi, and I think his sons were, like, 15 and 17. So it was funny. His sons were on set, and they were, like, could have been, you know, friends from high school of mine. Um, so he, you know, I didn't really pal up that much with, with Harrison. But anyway, so I'd been around actors. Uh, and so I'd written the script, and they had this scene in the movie with a punk and thought it was fun. And, and Leonard had me, Leonard and Harv Bennett, had me write stuff in the script, the sci-fi, like, gobbledygook that was mentioned, like, during when um, I just wrote, like, pages of, of tech talk. And one of the things I wrote, again, I'm not credited for, but the beginning, all the questions that Spock is getting thrown at him. Who said logic is the cement of our civilization to prove chaos using reason and other guide? Correct. That's my, not only my, I wrote all those questions, I then did the voice. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's my huh? voice. They couldn't give me credit because they said my name would have been the credits four times more than Leonard's. <laughs> uh, so I was like, that's fine. I, you know, the punk was at least on camera. Um, so, yeah, I wrote those questions. So at this point, Leonard had given me a lot of leeway. And during production, he said, you know what, we want? I want to reward you, but they won't let me make you an assistant or associate director or assistant director. So we're going to make you associate producer. I'm like, dude, I, that's great. Thank you so much. He goes, well you're doing so much and you know, you've been such a big asset to the production um, that, you know, I want to repay you somehow. I didn't get a bump, I didn't get a bump in salary, but I got a better credit, which was nice because assistant to Leonard Nimoy, I think people thought I would, you know, answer his mail. Right. Right. Uh, and he had an assistant, a, a lovely gal named Ori Saron who had been his assistant for, for years. And uh, so I got the associate producer credit. So I was feeling a little, I don't know, not cocky, but confident that, you know, he liked me, actually liked me. So when the script came out, what pretty much the shooting script, there was this punk scene. And I'd been in a punk band. I'd had a, a kind of a short version of a mohawk, an orange hair back back in the day. I was like 23 or 24. Um, I was like 23, I think, when we did the movie. So, you know, like three or four years earlier, I'd, I'd gone through a punk phase and a little bit in the, uh, at the end of high school. So I said, hey, I want to play the punk on the bus. And he looked at me. I've told the story a hundred times, but it was... We would just get together every day and go over. This was pre-production. We weren't shooting yet. So we'd talk about things, and I'd go off and do whatever I needed to do and, and just kind of check in with him a few times. Sometimes we'd have meetings. Sometimes I'd go with him to meetings. Sometimes he'd send me off to a meeting for him because he didn't want to go and thought it was boring. <laughs> um, so I was like the hand of the king. I was watching Game of Thrones. It's like he gave me so much uh, – I mean, I was 23, man. I, I Yeah, that's I amazing down, to like, have that kind of, like, responsibility and input. And that trust. I mean, the trust, that well, that's really what blew me away. Yeah. But that's how well we got along. I remember when he first interviewed me, he asked me about my taste in movies, my taste in, like, we just talked about art and acting, and we just, I think he just wanted to get a sensibility of my sensibilities. Mm -hmm. Anyway, mm -hmm. so I told him this, it was like a Tuesday, and I said, hey, I would like, and he looked at me, he's like, really? 
He just had this deep kind of, he kind of raised an eyebrow very Spock way. Really? I'm like, yeah, I, I was in a punk band. I, I know I, I'll do the hair and the makeup. I'll, you know, I know how to dress. And he's like, huh, let me think about it. So I said, all right, I'm not going to bother him. So like a week went by. And I just, business as usual, had his meetings. And I, I wasn't going to be that jerky kid who's like, what are you going to let me tug it on his shirt? Can yeah. I do it? Can I? So again, it was like a, a week later, like a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, something, at the end of the day. And I'm leaving his office. He would usually, at the end of the day, have a nice gin and tonic and just sit back and we'd shoot the breeze and talk about the day. And so we'd done that. And I was basically heading off. It was like five or six, you know, going to go home. And I'm heading out the door of his office. He goes, oh, one more thing. I'm like, yeah. He's like, you can do it. <laughs> like, wait, seriously? It's funny. Even now I'm getting goosebumps. I remember that moment. I'm like, wait, seriously? He's like, yeah, yeah, you got to show me what you want to do or how you're going to look. I'm like, oh, you will not be disappointed. So I went and did a sketch. I actually still have that. I found this sketch that I did of me on the, as the punk and uh, showed him that. And he's like, he kind of laughed. He's like, really? You're going to do that with your hair? I said, dude, I'm going to have bright orange hair, you know, <laughs> shaved sides. Like, all right. So I did it. And uh, we had a costume and wardrobe makeup test. And um, so we did it actually on the bus, actually crossing the Golden Gate Bridge. We uh, we did it like three takes. The first take didn't work because he didn't pinch. I'm wearing a cheap leather jacket, and his pinch, I couldn't feel through the jacket. So the first take, I'm kind of looking at him like, are you pinching me? I can't tell. <laughs> um, so we did it again. I think that second take was the one we used. And the other funny thing is there was no music. I'm just bopping my head. Because I knew punk music, and I knew it wasn't like it wasn't a waltz. It was like da 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 da. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just bopping my head back and forth and pretending to chew gum, um, and uh, you know, holding up my hand to the boombox. And uh, so yeah, we shot it. We went over the bus two or three times, and uh, that was it. So you know, a lot of a lot of like most movie things, you spend months and months, and it's over in thirty seconds to a minute. Um, but that's how I got the the part and the the job as associate producer. So I. Yeah, I, I was associate producer, played the punk, wrote this, wrote and sang the song, and also un, uncredited for, uh, <laughs> well, writing a bunch of dialogue that's just background dialogue. But the opening, uh, the computer voice at the beginning of the movie is me too. So, well, aside from just the the fun and effectiveness of that scene, I think one of the most important things about it is is, and it's very interesting to find out that you had the punk rock background because so often in movies, it'll it'll be yeah. something like street tough and it's this really uh yeah. unconvincing right. bad boy character yeah. that you're well, like some actor who doesn't want to fuck up oh excuse me he doesn't want to no mess no up that's their, fine that's fine uh, they don't want to no. mess up their hair so they put a you know they just kind of gel it up yeah and i was like oh man i'm i know what punk is i i uh and then i wrote and sang that well the song's a whole nother story that came about because speaking of that they they not only don't cast punks Especially for a bit. Like, if it's background, they'd probably get some street punks. But if it's a bit with the actors, they're always a little nervous. Mm -hmm. um, and so the song, the studio... So, again, that was done, uh, MOS, Met Out Song. Um, <laughs> so we're just I was miming along to an invisible beat. So when the studio said, okay, we're going to put a song on there, they were like, well, we have... Uh, uh, Paramount had a licensing deal with some rock bands, but they were, like, new age bands, like Duran Duran. Or, right, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, new wave music. I'm like, that's not that's not punk. That's new wave. Well, and that's what happens so much too. Is something like yeah. supposed to be really obnoxious to the to the straights on the bus, and then they play like Flock of Seagulls. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, this has got to be like Dead Kennedys, and they weren't going to go make a deal with the Dead Kennedys. So I said, 
I said to Kendall Leonard, because I, I knew that he liked me. <laughs> I said, hey, I, I can write a song and, you know, I'll write and sing a song that's a punk song and, you know, use it if you want. But um, I, I, I could do that in an afternoon. I mean, I used to write crummy punk songs that were <laughs> kind of fun. Like one of my, I mean, I love the Sex Pistols, Dead Kennedys, and a band called the Toy Dolls, which um, were sort of the Toy Dolls and, uh, uh, what are the names, the guy, they, they sort of tongue-in-cheek punk. There was a sense of humor about it. Well, even the Ramones, you oh, know, yeah, being yeah. I mean, that, that sort of sarcasm. And and, uh, and so I wrote and wrote, I hate you. I wrote it in about 30 minutes just saying what, to me, what was punk distilled to its essence. Yes, what, yes. Kind of, we've been screwed over by society. And because of that, I hate you, meaning I hate kind of everything. And so it just came. It just was easy. Like, I hate you. I berate you. <laughs> I hate everything you do. Yeah, yeah. But some of the funny things in there, I eschew you. It was a joke from my buddies in college. I worked at the UCLA Bruin, and which is the newspaper, and I was a cartoonist there with a couple other friends. And we used to just, you know, revel in funny words, and one of the things was, I eschew you. <laughs> like, so, so I got to put that in there. I just say, I eschew you, and I say, screw you, which was a great moment for the flip-off. Yes. And so it's kind of backwards engineered for like, all right, if, if you're running the scene and the song's playing, because so what I did was I, I worked on it and the music was, I wrote the lyrics and kind of whatever you call the melody, if it is a melody. And then the uh, sound engineer, sound designer, Mark Mangini, who's an Oscar winning sound uh, uh, designer, had done, I'd done Gremlins with and done some Gremlin sounds. And so he played guitar. I'm like, dude, you, you got to play guitar. So we, the band, the edge of etiquette as it's credited in the, uh, the movie is essentially he on guitar and um, the another sound engineer on the drums, and another guy on rhythm guitar. So we just put together a band. It's you know, a That's guitar wonderful. Guitar. Yeah, yeah. They were uh, Aaron Glasscock, John Pospisil, Mark Mangini, and myself. That is Edge of Etiquette. And um, we just, I just made up the name because the name came about. Sorry, see, I told you I could talk all day about. Oh no, this is a, this is awesome, man! I love this. It's good to get it recorded while I still remember it. You know, right, um, right. 70 years i'll be like i worked on that um <laughs> so uh oh, what was i saying um that, uh, uh, edge of etiquette how that came about oh um, yeah so because i would go to these meetings and i'm me and i have no almost no filter and i was going either with leonard or for leonard like i would go to meetings with the head of the studio it wasn't just he and I. It was like a table, you know, a roundtable meeting with like 10 or 12 people, department heads. Mm -hmm. And Leonard just said, look, I just want to make sure. And, you know, we're talking about sets. And Leonard's like, look, blah, blah, blah. I want the bird. Of, you know, we would talk about the design elements or whatever. Or he, Because he was an actor, and this was in, in, one of the things I really learned working with Leonard is, and it's kind of obvious, but when you experience it as opposed to, you know, someone tells you it, it's very different. He's like, he was an actor, obviously, and he came from an emotional actor's kind of standpoint, even as a director. And he said, I, I remember this meeting we had, and, and it was very early on. He goes, I am the heart of this film. He said, I, I focus on the heart. Not literally he's the heart, but like, I want to focus on the heart of this film. What is this movie about? What does this movie make you feel? Right, right. This, is a movie, this is a movie about friends. This is a movie about friends refinding their friendship, you know, because Spock is now kind of this, you know, tabula rasa. He doesn't really know who he is. He said, that's the core of this movie. The plot is the fun stuff and what they're doing, but I, I want to focus on the heart of that. So I want you, Kirk, to focus on the detail stuff that 
as long as it supports what I'm trying to do, I trust you. Like, if it gets down to, like, what the Klingon's hair looks like or, you know, what color the, the graphics should be, I, I trust you. And and that's what was amazing. Again, looking back now, I don't know if I'd hire a 23-year-old to, you know, I mean, I guess if he was talented, I don't, I don't think I was that amazing. But, um, but, but I'm that, at that point in his career, though, I mean, he, Leonard Nimoy, he, he had to have a feel for people. He had to have a feel for talent, for... Yeah, and uh, you know also, what I mean. And he didn't have to prove himself anymore. He didn't have to yeah. say I have to make every decision. He had there was no ego in that respect, and he really just wanted to focus on what he knew best, which was the story and the relationships between these characters. He said that, and that's why I think this movie stands out for non-Trek fans. I mean, Star Trek uh, Two is a great science fiction story, and mm. it's got and it's got a very Shakespearean kind of. Uh, to me, I thought it was so hammy, but I mean, I liked it. But this one is relatable as you and your friends. Like, anyone can see this movie and understand it. Oh, that's the friend who's the goofball. That's the friend who's really serious. That's, you know, it's, it's that core thing that I think why Trek has lasted so long. And they and when they did Next Generation, you know, they brought back, they, they created new characters, but with this, this core family kind of vibe. And so that's what I wanted to focus on. So anyway, so I'd go to these meetings with Ralph Winter, who became a, a good friend, who was the, basically the producer. Harv Bennett was the creative writing producer, and, and Ralph was essentially the rubber-meets-the-road producer, did all the, the money managing. I mean, with, with, uh, with Harv, but, but Ralph was the guy. And so he and I would very often go to these meetings, and, and Harv and Leonard wouldn't because it's just not their purview, or they just trusted us. And I would make these comments. I'd always make jokes, riff on things, do a pun, just like I do now. And... Um, so he called me, he said, you, you, you are the edge of etiquette. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you just walk that line. You say stuff to the head of, you know, Don, Don Steele and uh, Sid Gannis, the people who are running the studio. He goes, you say this stuff that no one else could get away with. But because you're Leonard's guy and essentially you have no power, it, I said, yeah, I'm like the, the court jester. You know, it's the guy who can say anything. And what, are they going to fire me? I mean, I'm $400 a week and, and you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter what I say. So I could say anything. Um, so he nicknamed me the Edge of Etiquette. So I said, "Well, we have to name the punk band that because it's a uh, it's a good punk band name." <laughs> oh, it's, it's a tremendous punk band name. And it's funny you mentioned yeah. the Sex Pistols uh, when you were talking about the stuff uh, you yeah. were listening to because when I you know I, I discovered punk pre-internet, so yeah. I didn't I didn't have easy resources to find all the songs anybody had written. I didn't have, you know, I couldn't immediately look up what, what songs were in what movies, who was in what bands, whatever. And I remember when I first kind of came across the Sex Pistols, I was like, oh, these must be the guys who did the song in Star Trek Four. It, <laughs> well, it's got to be. Yeah. And that was me. Well, so again, I mentioned the toy dolls. And uh, the guy in the toy dolls talk, sang like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I've got asthma and I can't breathe. <laughs> uh, so I had that kind of, so I was kind of doing a split between him and uh, and Sid Vicious with that kind of fake, you know, just what is the future? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trying to be an angry Brit. Um, also, another band, the Dickies. Uh, they weren't they were American, but really tongue in cheek. They did the song Stukas over Disneyland, and yeah. they they covered the Banana Split song as a punk tune. And the, so to me, punk was fun. It wasn't the anger part. I thought was kind of funny. Because it was very toothless, you know, it was like, I'm an angry punk, but basically, I, you know, I, I beat pipes against rocks. I don't actually have any power. I think it was the powerlessness of 
punk that fueled the anger. It's like you just felt like, and that was in the song, you know, the sins of being all the fathers being dumped on us, the son, the only choice we're given is how many megatons. That's how I felt growing up. It's like, well, we're all going to die in a nuclear blast. I mean, I grew up during the, um, I mean, all the punks that generation, we grew up with the threat of nuclear annihilation, nuclear yeah. winter. Yeah. Always yeah. hanging over, you know, duck and cover, all that stuff. Um, obviously, we weren't the first generation. The, the baby boomers grew up with that, too. But it, it really hit home in the in the late 60s to early, you know, before the wall fell. It just seemed like, you know, especially when Reagan was president, which is uh, kind of when this, you know, movie came out. Oh, absolutely. Not, exactly when this movie came out. Yeah, and, yeah. and and there were movies like uh, the day after and, and all that. So, well, the Cold War was. I mean, it, it's it's weird to think about it now in sort of the constant tension. But like back then, I remember, like, kind of every day you're kind of like, well, when's Russia going to attack us? Like right. that was just in the, in, in the 80s. Even as a kid, I kind of remember yes. that being the tone. Well, in, in the 60s and 70s, when I grew up, it, it just was like a constant. Uh, yeah, like the monkey on your back. Like you just knew. I, I mean, I think it it fueled punk and sort of the nihilism of it. Like why, you know, they're YOLO, man. Like we're gonna die yeah. tomorrow, so let's have fun. We're not gonna be rich. We're not gonna. We're just gonna have whatever. You know. I mean, I, I was not into drugs at all, but there were you know kids huffing paint and sniffing glue because it was a cheap high, and I was like, why worry about my brain when I'm in my forties when I'm not gonna make it? I mean, I think people made bad decisions because of it. Um, I never. You know, I always knew it was there, but I always thought, well, I'm not going to, you know, just in case we don't blow ourselves up. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> to be conscious and, and all well into my hundreds. Um, so, I mean, and that's the, that's the other side of sci-fi. In fact, that's the movie. It's sort of showing how desperate times were, you know, judging by the pollution content in the atmosphere. I'd yeah. say we latter half. Um, and the threat of extinction by our own hand, by, you know, not by nuclear war, but by wiping out species, which is, you know, the story still holds up. It's, it's even more prescient now with the global warming and the, um, you know, the, what are they calling the, um, Anthropocene where we're, it's, it's the next major extinction event and we're causing it. Yes. Yes. uh, You know, all those, all those concepts were either, I mean, I wouldn't say they're prescient because it was just as, as, um, it was, valid, I mean, it was, but it just—it's not gone away. In other words, we haven't fixed any of those problems. Well, and what's so important about that kind of stuff showing up in in pop culture and science fiction and our media is the kids do see it, and yeah. you know, yes, it's a message, and it's and and once you get to a certain age, it's recognizable as such. But for me, I know all that stuff that I took in when I was a kid. It, it penetrated. It, it got into me, and I feel these things that, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, it, it's a smart way of saying, look, we can be socially responsible, and we can have fun and be creative, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny, the, the last Trek anecdote just happened a couple of years ago, saying it, it, you know, you remember it. I was at uh, Comic-Con with a buddy of mine who knows, who works on, works with the Marvel people, and was at a party where Kevin Feige was, and he introduced me, my, my friend introduced me as, you know, this is Kirk Thatcher, and Kevin Feige looked at me, and he said, Kirk, the Kirk Thatcher? I'm like, <laughs> from Star Trek Four. I'm like, yeah. And he came up and he shakes my hand dead serious, like, you're the reason I got into film business. I'm like, what? I thought my buddy was punking me, so I kept looking at my friend, like, I'm laughing, going, wait, what, seriously? And he's like, yeah, I was 13 years old, and I saw that movie, and you were the punk, and you wrote the song, and you were a producer, and I said to myself, 
I want to do that. I want to work in a business where I can do all those things and have fun and work on Star Trek movies. And and he said, yeah, you're one of the reasons I was like inspired to to work in films. I'm like, holy cow, that's amazing. So I mean, that was that was a nice payoff because it's turned into a relationship with Marvel that hasn't turned into anything I can talk about yet, but it, it may. So oh, that's fantastic, man. Yeah, but that's funny. So who knew that something that long ago when when he was? I mean, I was only ten years older than he was. Uh, but um, it affected him, you know. And it's they did a Star Trek poll about two years ago. It was an online thing. What are the most memorable moments or the fan favorite moments? And and the Punk on the Bus was number three, I think. So it uh, it even was popular. I remember when Russia uh, when uh, um, the movie screened in in Russia in nineteen eighty five, eighty eighty six. I guess it came out eighty six, eighty seven, eighty six. I think I it came say eighty six. Yeah, I think it was 86. So they had a screening in Russia, and Leonard went over there for the screening. And he came back, and we were talking about it. I said, you know, how'd it go? He said, well, the biggest laugh in the whole movie is the punk on the bus scene. <laughs> he goes, because punks had just started becoming an issue in Russia. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Talk about a place where punk was really valid. Like, geez, yeah. you know, we're going to go starve to death. There wasn't even nuclear annihilation. It's like, you know, the wheat's dying. And um, So he said, yeah, the, uh, the Russian audience just loved that moment because they all wanted to shut the punks up on the bus too so now that was funny and well anyway. and that's 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 huge too because i mean there's some strong comedy in that movie so that's that's a yeah. solid that's a solid yeah. uh claim to be able to make <laughs> well let's well, uh let's any let's... Co- any country that loves uh russ meyer films as much as they do um, <laughs> i heard that he's the jerry lewis of russia like they look to them russ myers is a director of the pe- a filmmaker of the people and like they they revere him the way the French revere Jerry Lewis. Oh like, wow, that's interesting. I agree. Yeah. Well, you look at it, he is. A, I mean, especially of that era. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's um, let's go further back now because now now that uh, now that right. the question has been answered, Mom, I hope you yeah. enjoyed that. That was uh, an answer. I'm sorry. Oh mixed. no, it's fantastic. Uh, so where you said you grew up in L.A. Hmm. Where did, I mean, being surrounded by the industry, I, I assume, had an impact on your decision to be part of it? Uh, uh, yeah. Well, go ahead. Finish your thought. Oh, well, what was, what drove you to get involved or how did you get involved? I'm always very interested to know, like, if you recognize the point at which you were like, well, this is it. This is what I'm doing with my life. Yeah. I, I was a kid I think I was on this. I think I'm not think I'm pretty sure I was on the spectrum uh, to some degree. I think all artists are. I mean, you have to be to focus that much on stuff that, you know, has no immediate payoff. Um, but I like to read and I like to draw and I loved fantasy films. So growing up, I saw the Ray Harryhausen and pictures on TV because they'd already been released in the theaters. Most of them. Uh, so the, the big, big influence was King Kong. Bride of Frankenstein and um, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, all which I saw on television, along with like The Wizard of Oz and stuff. This is pre-Star Wars. And Star Trek I loved as a series and Lost in Space and that stuff. But the big influences were Kong, Bride of Frankenstein, and and Jason and the Argonauts. When Talos, the giant metal statue, comes alive and and the, um, the Hydra, just that, I was like, I want to do that. So between that and I'd heard about Imagineers who made the Disneyland rides. Like, I went to Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion probably when I was six or eight. And just, you know, I'm like, that's amazing. So no one in my family, uh, there was no art. There were no artists in my family. I had one cousin who threw pottery in, at Berkeley. 
And that was the artist in the family. Let me divert you real quick, because you know? something just occurred to me, and you mentioned going being six or eight and going through Pirates, going through the Haunted Mansion. What is it that makes the animatronics in there so much cooler than if it was people in there? It's funny you said that, because I always thought, man, I wonder if it would have been cheaper if they just hired actors. <laughs> Particularly the Pirates. I mean, Haunted Mansion, you know. There's ghost gags and stuff, but Pirates of the Caribbean, if, like, you took the figures out and actually had actors running around and jumping and just paid them, you know, 20 bucks an hour, like, would it be cheaper in the long run? And then every trip would be different. Um, I think that's part of the magic. It's, like, part of the uh, appeal of the Muppets is you know that they're fake in the back of your head or even stop-motion films like... uh, you know, the Wes Anderson one, I Love Dogs, or the Ray Harryhausen. There's something that makes it cooler because you know it's not real. And I don't know. It's like seeing a puppet show. I mean, if you just applied logic to it, you're like, you're seeing a guy's hands with socks on it talking to each other. Like, why is that more intriguing than actors or, it's... or a, a cell cartoon? There's something about the reality mm-hmm. of that thing, knowing it's a robot. And the style, you know, it's stylized to some degree. I mean, pirates, they're caricatured. They're not, like, Muppet stylized. But I think there's something in the back of our head that goes, this is cool the same way we think, you know, automata are cool. When you see a wind-up, when you see some of those amazing figures that have been made, you know, some uh, 150 years ago where they wind it up and it plays cards or does a magic trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something about the simulation of life. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder, is it, is it because we know somewhere inside we know like that's man-made yeah but it's we've created this almost living thing yeah exactly i think there's an intrigue of knowing it's a robot and even though it doesn't really do that much i mean look at pirates they either just stand there or sit there and kind of wave an arm swivel at the waist and move their arms (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but there's something about that tableau, uh, a, a simulation of reality, or a simulation of a of a reality that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but that yeah, 360 yeah. degree immersion too. I think those two rides put you in an environment where they spared no expense to have every detail: cobwebs and dust, and fire, and and water, and and ships, and and it's there's some joy of that as you really are transported to another world, even more so than really good virtual reality. I just did the the um, Shadows of the Empire. I forget what it's called, something in the Empire. Or, uh, the um, virtual reality where you put on a headset and you've got a gun and you're a stormtrooper essentially, or you're right, a rebel. Right. And it's amazing. It's really great. I had a blast. Um, but. It's way more interactive than Pirates. I mean, you're running around and you're going into rooms and, and uh, there's no lag and the graphics are... I mean, you just think in 10 years, it'll be just like being there, except you won't be there. And that's the thing. is like, if they actually built a space station that you ran around in, in a Stormtrooper or a Rebel outfit, and you had a gun that shot, you know, fake or lower-level lasers... Like that would still be better than VR, although probably way more expensive and, and insurance wouldn't cover it. But um, well, that's the that's the difference is that tactile. Because when you're in pirates, even though you're not interacting, you yeah. you feel that breeze, you feel the humidity in the air, like you're there. And it's something about the Muppets too. Having worked with them for so long, is 
you know, people have said, are they going to start doing Muppet movies and CG? I said, I don't think it will work. No. Because then you'd be like, well, why are they look so dumpy? I mean, if you can do CG, you can make them look like Pixar characters. I mean, Pixar made a Muppet movie. It's called Monsters, Inc. All right. those monsters are basically Muppets. Um, but the joy of it is knowing they're in the real world and, and, and the, the illusion, the, the suspension of uh, disbelief. Uh, is kind of the fun of it. Same thing with pirates. I think any of those figures. I mean, America Sings was cool. Um, I don't know how many people have seen it. They only, I think, it only lasts in the park about ten or twelve years. But um, it was all these animated, they were like Pixar characters. Now, uh, animals singing classic Americana type songs from like the eighteen, I don't know, eighteen twenties to about the nineteen seventies. Um, there was five different rooms, and each covered like a twenty period, twenty year era. Um, and uh, incredibly fun. It was like real cartoon characters, but they come alive. And now we kind of do that with, uh, you know, especially 3D CG movies now. The the animated films that Pixar does or Illumination, and you watch it in 3D. It's like pretty cool. They they seem really there. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's a big part of the appeal for uh, Pirates and and the Muppets tying into something that I, I worked with a lot. Um, that that back your head kind of knowing that it's not real and that's the fun of it yeah that's it well it's just when you mentioned those it interested me because one of my earliest sort of magical experiences uh at the six flags over georgia theme park that we have here there's a ride called the monster plantation oh right i've seen pictures of the characters from it oh my gosh it's it's just I, to this day i love it um right it's like monsters inc kind of character yeah yeah exactly and it's it's a dark ride it's through the water yeah. Um, and it's, and it's whimsy to it. It's yes. not scary. It's whimsical. Yeah, I yes. love that. And, yeah, and it was when I was a kid, just just being in that. Uh, I, I same thing with the Muppets. I think it's the idea of you know look at these amazing characters that somebody has figured out how to bring to life. And with the Muppets, it's an ongoing act where you're sitting there, you lose yourself because Kermit moves so damn well you're not thinking about a guy manipulating Kermit. It's just Kermit. And then when it's over, you're like, whoa, that was just tons and tons of people moving these puppets around. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, and, and back uh, to your original question about what got me into all this. So between those rides and those movies, I was like, I want to make, so I love science and biology. Uh, that was my first kind of fascination. I read, my mom reminded me, I just would read science encyclopedias, and, and to her, either credit or fault, she tried. She said, well, you know, you should try fiction. I'm like, I'm more interested in the real thing. She said, well, there's science fiction. She, we joke about it now that she ruins the day. She introduced me to science fiction because then I became completely absorbed in that and, <laughs> and since my love for And then it was like, oh, so you can, I can imagine creatures and, and, and uh, spaceships and, and anti-gravity. I don't have to actually go and learn math to make it happen. So at some point, probably between five and seven, I, I or seven or eight, I read a lot. I was I was an advanced reader for a kid, and so uh, I remember my birthday present was to go to the library and check out twenty books because you with one card you could only check out ten. So my mom would check out ten, and I would check out ten, and they covered everything from science and biology and you know books on animals to just science fiction and and you know uh, a lot of science fiction and art books. So all that kind of being said, I was like, well, I want to either do, by the time I was 10, I knew I either wanted to make movies with monsters or creatures or something like that, either funny or scary, or work at 
Disney and, and design theme parks. Because I would do that on my free time. I'd just sit and draw monsters or creatures or design, like, theme park rides. Like, this would happen, and then you do this. And then with my brother, we would make haunted houses for our friends. Just, <laughs> this is how little we were. We, could, we had a pool table, so we would take pillows, and we had these long cushions that were on this bench in our, like, our family room. And we'd make walls, and we'd have these haunted houses that our friends, you could crawl through under the pool table. Again, that's how tiny we were. We could crawl under the pool table. And, you know, I had little skeletons, and we'd make sound effects or run records and, and just kind of do this all the time. Like, let's make a haunted, haunted house. And it was just these little spook rides that we did for each other. It wasn't Halloween or anything. That's so right. So that was my, you know, I do that, and comedy radio plays with a tape recorder. And it's funny because, you know, I was reading about Martin Short and other Jimmy Fallon. Like, we all did this. It was a thing that you do. You just get your recording and, and make radio plays, you know, just with jokes and songs. And I used to do that. I would be a disc jockey, though. Yeah. I same. would put, so, I would put like, three songs together from my dad's <laughs> record collection. And I, I had my little cassette recorder. So I would literally put a record on and just sit there and record three songs. And then I would sit there and talk and tell jokes or probably repeat yeah. Steve Martin jokes or whatever. <laughs> and look, now, and now you have a radio show that's now called a podcast. Exactly. Well, it was the same thing. So but I would do comedy shows. I do because I love Python, Monty Python. I love Steve Martin. Um, I loved uh, any kind of comedy. So between creatures and comedy, <laughs> and I ended up on The Muppets. What a surprise. <laughs> uh, and then Star Wars came out. And I knew it was coming out because I was reading. Uh, there was a magazine that came out every couple months called uh, Cinefantastique. Yes. Was, yeah, it would cover the world of fantasy and science fiction films. And there was a little blurb about the Star Wars. And I bought the paperback. I saw literally like in a uh, drugstore about six months earlier. So it came out in uh, May. I saw it probably January, February. There was a paperback with the Ralph McQuarrie painting and it said the Star Wars. And so I bought that and read it and got so excited and realizing this is a movie. And I mean, the cantina scene alone I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I can't wait to see this movie. So I got to see it. I, I, my mom let me out of school because I was literally losing my mind. I got to see it opening day at Man's Chinese, a 12 o'clock noon show with two friends from school. We ditched school and, uh, and went and saw it. Um, so I was 15. And uh, then it sealed the deal. Like, I want to make special effects. I want to do that. I want to make those kind of movies. Um and I didn't have anyone in the business. No one was, like I said, no artist. So what helped me make that decision was, I, like you said, I grew up in L.A. So I grew up in Van Nuys. There were a lot of people who worked in the industry, but they weren't writers, directors, producers. They were like our, my next-door neighbor, like my best friends growing up. It was uh, three boys between my – well, they, we literally went every year, the oldest and then the second oldest. And the th so there were those three, and then my, me and my brother were all like a year and a half apart. So <laughs> we were just five ki five boys within like a six, seven-year range. And so we were uh, we made our own little film company. We made Super 8 movies together. And their dad worked in the film business. He was a composer and also had a, a post-production facility where they do sound and and editing and music and, and kind of do whatever kind of post was needed for like smaller budget movies, what we call B movies now. Um, and so he had a job in it and I knew that like, okay, you can make a living working in it. And I would ask him questions and we'd go, 
he had a movie all in his back studio. We'd play with a movie all and, you know, loop together mag tracks to make sound effects and, and just kind of grew up around it, not thinking it was, you know, this unattainable thing. And again, we'd ride our bikes to his uh, office in Burbank and just goof around uh, in his studio with uh, the moviolas and the editing equipment just because, you know, it was filmy. And they had tons of stuff they used for leader, for audio leader, because audio was on 35 mag stripe. So it was magnetic uh, media tape, but it was it was on a 35 millimeter film strip. So you could run it with the moviola and slide it back and forth and sound, sync up your sound back then. So they what they'd use is old uh, 35 millimeter footage for blanks, like when you needed a gap. You'd, so we, there was all this old movie footage laying around, and you know, just I don't know where they got it, but they just called it leader. And um, so we had movie footage and audio track to play with, and just kind of learned the mechanics of it by osmosis. No one ever sat us down and taught. I mean, the the oldest son showed us how to work the moviola, but you really couldn't break those things. They were cast iron. Um, you know, uh, they're kind of indestructible. That's such a good uh, way to learn, man. I, I yeah, you I just kind love of, the yeah the sitting down and like, all right, we're gonna figure this out now. Yeah, and just my and mucking about with it and playing. There's no wrong. You couldn't again. You couldn't really break. It's not like digital stuff now where you could, you know, like wipe the hard drive by pushing a couple wrong buttons. So that gave me the confidence to know you could make a living in this business, and then just kind of either the the stubbornness of, of being on the spectrum and being absorbed in something where I just I mean I didn't I didn't go on dates I didn't go out I didn't even drive learn to drive till I was 18 because I didn't want there was nowhere I wanted to go I wanted to sit in my room and draw or watch uh, well I didn't have VHS tapes then so watch TV or draw or read or paint or you know some sculpt make model kits uh, I wasn't super um, I mean, I had my best friends and a couple of friends that's in a few friends at school and I wasn't a loner. I just liked to do stuff that usually I couldn't rope any of my friends into. Yeah. Yeah. You, <laughs> and that's you just, learn to be okay doing your yeah. own thing. Well, you're just so focused on, it. I mean, like I said, I think artists somewhere on the spectrum, cause you sit there for hours focusing on something that has no real worldly value. You're not like, I mean, obviously it does if you know you're going to sell it, but when you're a kid, no one's buying your drawings. No one's saying, Hey, uh, you know, sculpt this monster for me. I'll give you a hundred bucks. Yeah. So you're just focusing on it cause it's fun and it's cool and you want to get better at it. Um, and that paid off in the end is that I met, I was very fortunate in that I met uh, Joe Johnston, who was the, production designer for uh, ILM. ILM, that was another lucky break. I grew up about two miles from where ILM was for Star Wars. It was in Van Nuys, right near Van Nuys Airport. And uh, I literally think I was less than two miles away. I could ride my bike to where it was. and But nobody knew that until my mom came home from church one day and said, hey, I met a woman whose son worked on Star Wars. I said, "What? okay, well, that's cool. What's his name? Joe Johnston. I'm like, wait, Joe Johnston? I already had his sketchbook. So this was the summer uh-huh. of 77. So uh, Star Wars had been out for two or three months. And I was like, are you kidding me? Joe Johnston? I mean, he's designed all the spaceships and helped design them and storyboarded. Like, he's got sketchbooks out. And so I met Joe, who was incredibly nice. And he's about 10 or 11 years old than me. So, like, you know, I was 15 and he was, like, 26, 27. And, uh, he had. They were working on Galactica, but he gave me a tour of ILM, and I said, "Dude, I you know I didn't call him dude, but I was like, <laughs> I wanted. I showed him all my drawings and the models I'd been scratch building or building, and I said, I want to work 
at ILM. I said, I know I'm too young. And they said, well, keep doing what you're doing. Like, keep building models and drawing and, you know, learn perspective and blah, 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 learn how to storyboard. And in other words, just keep doing what you're at and, you know, we'll, we'll keep in touch. So I would talk to him once or twice a year. Again, there was no email or cell phones. I would just call him and say, hey, and talk to him and try not to bother him, but just keep keep that contact going. And, and he was very nice. We shared a goofy sense of humor. And um, so I graduated high school and uh, went with some buddies, the same buddies I grew up with. I told you that the, the three friends. Uh, we got in two cars and drove up. We, we stayed. We went camping in Yosemite. And then we went to San Francisco. And I called Joe up and I said, hey, I've got like five buddies, my brother and, and three other friends, and we're going to be in the Bay Area, We'd, could we get a tour of ILM? Because now it, we had, they'd moved up to Marin County. And he said, sure, yeah. So we figured out we could visit him on a Saturday when it was closed. So we went to ILM and got the two, three-hour tour and just walked around and asked a bunch of questions. And again, Joe was very gracious. And um, I was kind of like, dude, I got to work here. And he said, well, you know, keep in touch and, and keep working on your art. I said, all right. So I, I started... Um, Oh, I gave them this creature I'd made for a friend's movie. I made this latex kind of troll demon creature uh, for a friend of mine's Super 8 movie, and which never got finished, but we had some cool shots. But anyway, I had this weird, imagine like uh, sort of a Jabba, kind of big fat creature with little horns, and he had glass eyes and a big fat belly. And so it was just the head and the kind of the, the, the to the belly button. And uh, he was in the movie. He just sat behind a big desk. It was sort of being judged in hell. And so I gave it to him. I said, hey, I brought this. I wanted to show it like a, my portfolio piece. He's like, oh, it's great. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll stick it in the creature shop. I'm like, cool. I'm, have at it. So I gave him that and then went to UCLA for a quarter. Uh, started in the fall. And at the end of that, which was like January, I realized that I couldn't do anything. I couldn't touch a camera. I couldn't make any movies for like another two or three years, and I've been making movies on my own since I was 12. So I was frustrated. So I called him. I said, hey, I knew you guys, and you know, the press was, they were starting on the third Star Wars movie. And I said, hey, I called him up. Um, this was sometime in January, late January, I guess. I said, hey, I know you're working on the new Star Wars film. Can I, can I come up and like intern? I will make coffee. I, you know, I'll sweep the floors. I'll, I'll mix plaster or whatever. And it was funny. And this is one of those moments in your life. You're like, huh? He said, who have you been talking to? I said, what? What do you mean? He said, who told you? I said, who told me what? He said, I just put your name on a list literally yesterday for people they should interview. Cause George wants a creature shop here in Marin County. Cause he doesn't like it all being done in England where he can't, again, this is before the internet where he can't yeah. see anything for months or he has to fly back and forth. Um, I'm like, you're kidding. He goes, no, nobody told you. I said, seriously, dude, I just just finished my first semester at UCLA, and I'm, I'm like, I'd rather go work on a real movie than. And he, he, I think he was a bit incredulous. Like, seriously, nobody told you. Nobody told me up there. I, I, I literally, he was the only. I said, you're the only guy I know. He's like, all right. So I got all excited and went and had a got my. I think my folks drove up with me. And uh, had an interview. No, I might have just driven up by myself. I had a car at that point I could drive. Uh, and had an interview with uh, Tom Smith, who had just taken over um, from Jim uh, Jim Bloom. And I met Chris Wallace and Ken Ralston. And at that point, Chris was going to co-run the Creature Shop with uh, Phil Tippett. 
and I interviewed, and I remember it was very funny. I, they gave me a tour again, and I showed them my creature, and, and uh, so they knew I knew how to do the basic things. I could sculpt, I could mold, I could cast, I could paint. I knew how to run foam. Um, and they took me out to lunch, and they both of them just railed on me like you're an idiot. I'm like, what? And they're like, you want to work here? Your parent, you, your parents would pay for a UCLA education, and this is exactly what my parents have been telling me. Like, you want to work? Well, they told me a week later. Um, I'm like, yeah, I want to work on Star Wars. Like, it's just a stupid job. It's a dumb movie. You, you get a degree. I'm like, yeah, but it's Star Wars. And they're like, you're, you can't believe you're that stupid. I'm like, what? No, come on, you guys. Like, seriously? They're like, yeah, you're an idiot. And I don't know if they were like, I mean, I asked them years later, and they said, no, we thought you were an idiot. <laughs> you trying to just see if I really wanted to do it? Like, no, we thought you were an idiot. <laughs> like, okay, cool. Um, so I went home and, and so anyway, so I, that was it. And then I got back and about a week, two weeks later, I got a call saying, Hey, we'd like to hire you for the grand total of four, $400 a month was my, or $400 a week was my salary for like six years. Um, which wasn't much then, uh, it was impossible now, but, yeah. uh, so I, I, you know, kind of threw a rod and got super excited. And my parents said basically what, what Ken and Chris was saying, you're going to throw away a college degree to go play with as my mom. Put it, you're going to throw away a college degree to go play with spaceships and rubber monsters. I'm like, yes, yes, I am. Man, uh, I got to tell you, I mean, to me, that sounds perfect. <laughs> I know, well, and, you know, it, it wasn't like Star Wars wasn't, it wasn't like the first Star Wars where nobody knew what it was. I mean, I was right. like, come on, this is a phenomenon. Um, but my parents, again, not in the film business. They knew people in the film business because they both grown up in L.A., but they knew enough to know that it wasn't, you know, a dreamy, uh, it was a tough business. And yeah. there's a lot of shady characters in it. Um, anyway, so I, you know, in my, my, my callow youth won over and I would not be, dis- I mean, really, you couldn't have dissuaded me. My, remember, my girlfriend, the girlfriend at the time was like, you're going to leave me? And go, I'm like, yes, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but yep, I'm going to leave you and go work on Star Wars. If you want to come up, fine. But if not, I'm going to go there. And uh, uh, so I did. I went and I started working on the creature shop. My first week was painting the building from the inside. I literally, I said I'd sweep floors and make, I never had to make coffee. But I did sweep floors and paint the interior. Now, remember, it was a industrial space, so it was like 24-foot ceilings. Um, so they gave me an airless. I was by myself. I was the first person hired who wasn't already an employee there and painted the inside of the building on a scissor lift, and I was terrified of heights. So it, it oh, already gosh. job t- tested my – but I was like, nope, I'm not going to screw this up. I remember the first time I went up on the scissor lift, and my head's about 24 feet in the air – on a, a scissor lift, which isn't that shaky, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not a cement building. Yeah, it's well, it's still not the ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so my hand is holding the rail, and I'm trying to, and I'm spraying with an airless sprayer, which you can't really do wrong. But I remember it was shaking. The whole thing was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I got over my fear of heights pretty fast. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, worked on Jedi for like a year and a half, got to go on all the locations I was going to go to England to do support of the creatures, but I got sick. I got urethane poisoning in mono and was out of commission for like two weeks. I had a terrible fever and was hallucinating. And so I didn't go to Lon- uh, London cause I was too ill, but then pretty much as soon as they went to, uh, I went to Yuma, Arizona for a gosh, like two months. It was a long shoot. And then about, uh, maybe about the same six weeks in, in, uh, Brookings, Oregon. So I did all the Java's, exterior barge stuff and all the um, Ewok stuff in the forest and then pickups and blue screen stuff at ILM. Um, and so, I mean, for your first project, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, then stayed at ILM kind of off and on and made a very good friend there, David Fincher, who's gone on to have a nice career. Um, One of my favorite directors. uh, Well, he and I were the two youngest guys at ILM. We we jokingly called each other, babe. We would page each other, baby Dave, call baby Kirk Gunn. Because, yeah, we were both still teenagers. Uh, Technically, we were both 19. Um, Dave might have been 18. I mean, he was six, five months younger than I am, so he might have started... He might have still been an 18-year-old, but uh, anyway, uh, we I did Star Trek 2 and 3, and then Gremlins 1 with Chris Whalis. So Chris left the creature shop to start his own shop, and I helped him out on a couple things, then he got Gremlins. So I worked on Gremlins for about four or five months. I designed their paint job and their eyes. I designed how they... Chris had kind of done the overall, obviously, design work. Tony McVeigh sculpted it. But then I did three or four different paint treatments, and they picked one of them, which was the kind of dark gray, dark green brown with the flesh-colored stripes and the kind of cockroach kind of colors on the back. So I designed that and then set up the mold shop and realized I didn't want to be a mold maker for the rest of my life, which is what – and Chris needed me to do that because none of the other guys had done it really. Um, and I just didn't want to do it. So I, I left Gremlins and did about six months of rock videos with Dave Fincher. We'd formed our own little production company with my girlfriend at the time, became a producer, and we did a Rick Springfield's Bop to You Drop, and which has a monster in it, which is me. I designed it and wore the costume and designed. I was a production designer on the video. And then we did some uh, a whole, what is it called, Beat of the Live Drum, I think. Uh, like It was a concept album of rock videos. And I did that as production designer and then did a couple of motels videos with David uh, and then moved to L.A. and started back at UCLA and then went into Star Trek, as I told you. So um, I, got, I covered a lot of ground in the first <laughs> six years of my uh, career. Yeah, no kidding. Well, about uh, the music videos, I mean, back then... <laughs> they were I, a big deal. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was a huge proving ground for a lot of directors that we know now. And, yeah. and plus, at the time, you know, now music videos are, I don't even know what's going on with them now, because I'm getting old and don't care about pop music. But back then, yeah. I mean, they were events. An artist would put out a new video, and yeah. Entertainment Tonight would talk about when it was going to premiere on MTV, and there would be big interviews. And, you know, the, the record companies were paying for these big, lavish videos. Yeah. What what was what was the process like? What, what, well, you, to you, what extent... You, yeah, well, Rick Springfield found us. David had done uh, a public service video about uh, it was a smoking fetus, and it was it was an image of a fetus. And as the camera came around, you realize it took a puff on a cigarette and blew oh, out. Oh my gosh, I remember that. Yeah, so my buddy Tony McVeigh, who worked at the Creature Shop and on Jedi, uh, he sculpted a bunch of the designs, Salacious Chrome, and, and did a bunch of characters. Um, he sculpted the fetus, and Dave shot it and directed it, and so they'd gotten some attention. And so Rick Springfield knew there were these guys up, and the young guys at ILM were ready to do stuff. And so his agency or whatever found us through David, and we got um, we pitched this idea for Bob to you drop, and I did design the creatures and kind of the sets, and uh, Dave pitched the story, and we shot it in three days in the summer in a abandoned or a, a a, uh, uh, it wasn't banded, but it was de- 
decommissioned like steel mill from World War II. It's just a metal building, like a giant metal shed the size of a supermarket or a department store. It was like 40 foot ceilings and, and but it was just being all metal. And, um, we turned it into all the sets and, uh, kind of spent a long two weeks building it and then shot it in three days. Uh, and then after that, because it got a lot of attention because there was all these special effects, and I remember they're saying, oh, the guys from ILM, from Lucasfilm, had done this on the side, which was true. And then we got, uh, Rick liked working with us, and he was fun and easy to work with, so we did the whole concept album, Beat a Live Drum. Which I think we did like four or five other videos. And uh, I had a couple cameos in those two as a, as a clown in one. Uh, <laughs> I'm talking about Nuclear Annihilation. Uh, can't remember the name of the song, but it was about um, it. Basically, it's Rick in kind of a uh, dystopian world of garbage and smoking debris, where it's like the world's been blown up. And then there was a Mister Rogers kind of show where he's Mister Rick, and the clown is bringing out planes and talking. They're talking about you know, nuclear radiation, and there was a one-eyed mutant puppet, and so it was kind of dark. And again, playing with those same themes of like, are we going to blow ourselves up? Uh, so did when you having you done all, a little yeah. bit of acting and and whatnot, like whenever you first decided to get on camera for something, were there any thoughts of like, oh, I I hope this is a thing I can do, or was it just like, nope, I'm doing this, whatever? Well, in the video, I'd done theater, uh, musical theater in high school, junior high, so I was not shy. I was shy kid until the teacher said, "You're," I was a class clown, like an introverted extrovert. Yeah, yeah. Like, if I wasn't on the spot, I'd do and say anything. But if someone goes, hey, do that thing, suddenly I'd freeze. Yeah. So uh, he put me in a school play. And then in my senior year, well, at ninth, tenth, ninth grade, I was the lead in a play, a musical. It was How to Succeed in Business. And uh, so then I lost any sense of fear. I had so much fun doing it. Because to me, it's just playing. It's like, oh, you're just playing with your friends and being goofy and, you know, if you like the role. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the cameos in the rock videos were just, well, no one else would be dumb enough to do this. It wasn't glamorous. <laughs> it was, who wants to put on this clown makeup and dance around like an idiot? You know, um, I'll do it, you know, because basically we're not going to hire an actor. Same thing with the creature in um, Bop to You Drop. It's like, well, I'm here. I've got a life cast in my head. We can build it around me, and I'll be encased in fiberglass and latex and wear full scleral contact lenses 14 feet in the air in the middle of a heat wave. Um, it was, I think I sweated out about 14 pounds on that shoot. Uh, uh, so yeah, it was like, you really couldn't ask anyone else to do it. Cause they'd be like, screw you. I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. I chew you. I say screw you. Um, <laughs> that's a callback. Uh, so anyway, yeah, that was, uh, it wasn't, I, I always, I enjoy acting, but I hate auditioning. It's just demoralizing. So I, I always, people want to put me in stuff. Uh, pretty much any little part I've been given is because like the Spider-Man cameo was because Kevin Feige was a Star Trek four uh, fan. So he made me punk on the street. He right, really, right. We were having a meeting about this project I'm talking about with them. And in the middle of it, he had to leave and he had to say, I'm going to New York. I'm like, oh, I'm going to New York too. He said, when I said, well, Friday, he said, Hey, if you can be there Friday morning, we'll stick you in the Spider-Man. I'm like, seriously? He goes, yeah, yeah, you can, you can be the punk. I'm like, what? He's like, well, we'll figure it out. So I, I, next day I get a call from the producer like hey we're doing Spider-Man um, if you can be there Friday morning at like 4 in the morning 
we'll stick in the movie as we came up with a little part you can just kind of wedge yourself in on. So that's how I got that one-line cameo. It's because Kevin Feige, but I'm, I've got, uh, I've made $380 in residual payments. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I got my second check. Uh, it was like 120 bucks, and the first one was like 260 or something. So um, it wasn't a big payout, but it was fun, and it was nice that Kevin even wanted to put me in it. Um, but anyway... Uh, where was I going? Catching that? up to uh, Star yeah. Trek Four. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So, did the videos with Dave? Did a bunch of Rick Springfield? Then did Martha and the Mot- Martha Davis and the Motels? Uh, a couple videos for them, and that's when I was at UCLA. And then I met Leonard and did Star Trek Four, which took, takes us about to '86 when it came out. And then I met Jim Henson, a special effects producer. I became friendly with her husband and directed, it was Jim Frawley, who directed the original uh, Muppet movie. And and she, I'd showed her some designs and stuff. I'd been working with her. Uh, she was a, like a headhunter for uh, Omnibus Able. They were trying to get gigs. And they contacted us for Star Trek Four, but it didn't work out. We had an exclusive with ILM. But she and I became friends, and I was showing her some designs I'd done, and and she said, you know who would love this stuff and you should meet is Jim Henson. And I'm like, I'd love to meet Jim Henson. He already done Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. I like it had just come out. So I met Jim and, and there's a whole other podcast. But anyway, we, we well, had I, I think what we'll do is get a little bit into Henson here yeah. and then consider uh, Dragon Con our part two. <laughs> where we talk about, since that will be for the puppetry track at Dragon Con, uh, we can consider that sort of a, a part two of this awesome. episode. Awesome. That sounds great. Um, so, yeah, I met Jim Henson, and I pitched him some ideas, and he was staying at the Beverly, no, the um, the Beller Hotel. So we had lunch, and then went back to his room with his assistant and sat on the floor, and I showed him my portfolio and these creature designs I'd done. And we hit it off, and he called me two weeks later or a week later and said, hey, do you want to come work with me? I'm like, yeah, I would love to. And we started a beautiful friendship and <laughs> working relationship. Originally started just working freelance uh, out of my house in LA uh, with him and flying out to New York a few times. And then I moved to New York in 80, early 88. So I had about a year and a half of just freelancing on two projects and then moved to New York to work on the Jim Henson hour with him and spent half the time in Toronto half the time in New York, and originally I was just an idea guy. I would do drawings and come up with ideas and brainstorm with Jim, sort of creative riffing with him, which is like the best job in the world. Um, and that was my responsibilities, was show up, be creative, and, you know, be Jim's idea guy. Uh, so that was great, and uh, we did that, and then after the Jim Henson Hour, I moved back to L.A. because I didn't want to. Jim was like, oh, no, you'll stay here, and you can. I'll just keep you on the payroll. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to take your money just to exist. Um, cause I felt he was like a friend, not just a boss. So I said, I'll move back to LA and then we'll just do what we did before. I'll we'll work on things, uh, as they happen. And so we back to LA and worked on RoboCop two for about six months with Phil Tippett. I lived oh, up in, man. yeah, I designed a couple things, the tank where the brain and the eyeballs and the spine are kept. There's like a long tube cylinder with like bubbles on it and, um, what's left of a cane is in there before they put him in the in the um, forgot uh, the cane robot, and then in the end, when he pulls his brain out in that little 
contraption that holds his brain. I built that and made it a breakaway. So I designed and built some stuff for RoboCop too, uh, working with Phil Tippett. And so then that happened, and then I got a job at Imagineering. This is all my first 10 years. I had a good first 10 years. This is tremendous. Um, yeah, I know. Even I'm like, wow, I got around. Um, <laughs> well, starting at Lucasfilm at 19, I think everyone was thought I was impressive. <laughs> and then they met me. Well, I um, think... I, I mean, your your love for what you're doing, it, it comes through very clearly, I think. And I think that probably counts for a lot of people. Like, you want to work with people who love the stuff, you know? Yeah, it's not It's not like for, you don't do it for the money. <laughs> I, I think also my, my mom gets a lot of credit for humanizing me. <laughs> I was basically a feral child. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but I, I like people. I didn't really get people until my late teens. And uh, it was like going from science books to science fiction. I think my mom was like going from people you make up to real people. Um, anyway, so yeah, so I worked in Imagineering for uh, about nine months. At the same time, I was working with Jim on Dinosaurs. And the ride, I was working on a, a redo of the Carousel, with the Ameri- which was America Sings, and had been fallow for about five years. And they were trying to reintegrate it into Tomorrowland. So I did a, a ride. I brought Tony McVeigh in on it, um, who was one of the creature sculptors and designers on Jedi. And we designed a bunch of aliens for this crazy ride. It had been amazing. Um, and like a bunch of things happened. So that was happening. And then Jim and I had started working on dinosaurs, <clears throat> early brainstorming. And uh, I'd done two sets of drawings, and then he passed away. But Disney or ABC bought the show anyway. And so I left Imagineering because that ride turned out, it was, we started in like 1990 and by end of 1990 or middle of 1990, uh, Disneyland Europe, Euro Disney had opened and it tanked. So suddenly they killed all development. They were like, holy crap, we, we got to pull back. So all the development on rides stopped, which, so for me, it was good timing, because literally I left, and like two months later, they killed everything we'd been working on, um, and so I worked on Dinosaurs, and that, we can start with that on your... Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, because that's, I mean, that's got to be a fascinating conversation. And and actually, I saw that you just interviewed interviewed Eric and Julia Leewald. Yes. And, and I had brought them in on a project I was developing with Jim about, uh, it was going to be a... CG TV series, animated series, about uh, uh, genetically altered and, and like, robo-copped dolphins working with humans in, like, a sea lab kind of show, whereas it was dolphins and a killer whale that were working with people sort of the way, I don't know, if you ever read any of the David Brin stuff, uh, the Uplift series, it was that kind of idea, like a science fiction thing in the future. The idea was the Earth was now inundated with water, and so, man, because of global warming... Yeah, that was Prussian too. I didn't think about that. Yeah, um, yeah. So Eric and uh, Julia wrote the script. Eric was, I think, busy with X Men at that point. Uh, but yeah, so worked with them and still friends with those guys. So yeah, a lot of a lot of fun people passed through uh, the Henson Company, and um, and there, yes, yeah, so we can start with dinosaurs next time. Absolutely. And before we wrap it up today, yes. though, I've got to ask you about uh, Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends <laughs> and Lazy Town. Mm, wow. Yeah. Uh, I think Lazy Town was first. That was like 2004. I mean, I think Foster's came after, so we'll do Lazy Town first. Um, 
I had done a Muppet TV movie at that point, Very Merry Muppet Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I got a call from a producer in New York saying, your name came up. I'm working with this guy in Iceland who's doing this kid show. He's done a pilot, like a premise pilot. And it's puppets and live action and computer-generated backgrounds. And there's not a lot of people with experience in those three things. And you're one of the people that has that experience. Right. You're the guy. Wow. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. He said, well, they want to shoot it in Iceland. It's this guy, Magnus Sheving, who created the show. as a big hit in Iceland. I'm like, okay. Um, but they want to meet with you. I'm like, all right. So I talked to them on the phone. I was on a conference call with Iceland. And I flew out there. I was like, I think November of 2003, maybe, uh, talking to them. And so early January, I flew out to Reykjavik. And basically, we made a deal, and I did the first episode of the series and then directed the second. I did two episodes or three. I don't remember now. It was two or three episodes <clears throat> and uh, became very good friends with a number of people there, but particularly the guy uh, who plays Robbie Rotten, who's the kind of the breakout character and the villain. Yeah, yeah. And Stefan uh, Carlson, Stefan Carl. And uh, a lovely guy, and just became best friends with him, and really had a blast working with him. The show was crazy. We called it Crazy Town. The amount of work that they wanted to do. It was it was a high-def show, and there were only three Sony high-def cameras or red high-def cameras at that point in existence. And he had two of them. And it was just nuts what the, what he was trying to do, or ultimately did. I mean, it was, it was the power of, of like just being stubborn. But um, so I worked on these two or three episodes and, and quickly realized that Magnus was crazy. He <laughs> just, well, in terms of what he wanted to do, he wasn't actually crazy. But uh, look, I get it. that He didn't get where he got to by being, like, reasonable. Um, but I just didn't want to live in Iceland for a year and, and direct. And he, the way he tried to challenge you was by insulting you. It was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He wanted to, someone had told him, it really came down to this, someone told him he could shoot the show in three days. I'm like, you can, but not the way, he wanted to shoot it like Citizen Kane. And the pilot he'd done was gorgeous. That was great, and all these great camera moves and all this. I said, but you can't shoot it in three days to make it look like that. You can shoot it more like, you know, wide shots, cross singles, move on. And, and <laughs> so after the first episode, which took like eight days just to shoot it that way, he's like, you this is not, you need to storyboard it. I'm like, the storyboards don't help at all. I know we can add shots, but with this three-day schedule, you're never going to make it. And he's like, if you are a good enough director, you can do it. I'm like, I'm not that good, man. You <laughs> you show, you should show me. And then the producer like literally jumped across the table. was like, no, 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 you're the director. You need to do it. So I, I quickly realized that he was just going to be the frustrated with me and, and tell me how, hold on a second. Oh, okay. Should have put it on silent. I'm sorry. Oh, we can we can always take a moment for the monsters. There's there's no problem there. It's probably a junk call. I get a lot of them now. Um, well, what's is... what's interesting about Lazy Town is my it was one of the shows that my son really liked when he was young. Yeah. And there's nothing looks like it. It is so you exactly. even even among children's shows that tend huh. to have kind of a unique look and everything nothing else looks like lazy town well and there's a reason for that because it was done without a network's influence i mean i i, I design shows that don't look like anything but they usually go ah, kids won't like that so right, right that's what i'm saying that to magnus's credit he designed the show 
with uh, a couple guys in Iceland, and it was amazing looking, and it was you know just very very um, ambitious, and that was the problem. He wanted to make like feature film quality, and I would have loved to have done it, but we needed eight days an episode, not three. Right. So knowing that he kept thinking that it was because I was lazy or because I just wasn't good enough or whatever, even though he offered me like. 15 episodes out of 20 or something I'm like I just don't want to deal with that drama because he was very um, what's the right word confrontational he's like you are not good enough I'm like yeah you're right I'm not he's like well then I can do it I'm like hey, you do it and they were like no no when he does it, it, it he takes you know he takes 16 days um, and again I'm not slagging the guy I just think he he didn't realize what he was getting into and, yeah. and he'd been some bad advice and he was kind of stuck because he was on the hook for it so ultimately, they made two seasons, and and he went. I think he went bankrupt, and I think he's quit. I mean, from what I've heard, he's quit being a show producer and went back to being. He he was a world champion aerobics guy. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, he really bootstrapped himself. From that, he turned to the show Lazy Town, trying to just you know basically teach kids how to be physical and, and yeah, active. Yeah. Um, anyway, I became really good friends with with um, Stefan, the the villain, who's funny. He's, he's Robin Williams funny or Jim Carrey funny. He's just happened to be Icelandic. He played the Grinch for a number of years here in the States, traveling around, uh, doing a live stage show of the Grinch, and he just stole stole the show. Um, and sadly, he's been he's been stricken with pancreatic cancer. Oh, gosh. And, yeah, I, I'm going to try and go out and visit him. He just texted me a couple weeks ago and said, hey, can I see you before I leave? And um, so, yeah, that's been tough, because he's a lovely guy. He's got a wife and kids, and they're all fantastic, and Anyway, sorry not to bring you down, but that's lazy. no, no. This stuff happens, man. That's the that's the other side of meeting so yeah. many people that that are great, you know. Yeah, and then um, the other oh, uh, Fosters happened because uh, Lauren and Craig, the creators of it, were fans of the Muppets, and they heard I was available because like, I knew friends at, at Cartoon Network, and so they asked if I'd be interested in writing episodes. I'm like, yeah, and so. I wrote three. They made two, and they, they asked me if I would be. It was Cartoon Network has a lot of changeovers in management, and, mm-hmm. and so when I, they hired me, they're like, "We we can't hire a full time staffer, but we'd like you to be our full time freelancer." In other words, we'll just keep giving you shows, and you'll write them, but you're not going to have a staff position. I'm like, "That's great. I love freelancing. I can still work with Muppets." I'm like, "Yeah." So it's going to be great. So I did two episodes and worked on the third, and then suddenly. I stopped talking to them. I was talking to a producer guy, and things got squirrely and a little weird. Again, not with them, but with the producer guy who was just doing his job, but suddenly they weren't returning calls. And finally, I'm like, what's up? And essentially, they just said, well, we've been given a dictate that we can't hire freelancers. We have to have in-house people, and we can't hire anyone new. So we're going to go with in-house people. I'm like, okay. I mean, I wasn't offended. And I I asked them later because I stayed friends with Lauren and Craig and I said, was, seriously, was that thing? Did I offend anybody? Nope, that was it. We just couldn't use you anymore. I'm like, oh, that sucked. Because they were fun to write. It was a fun show. And Barry was very Muppety, like, you know, core yeah. characters. And, um, Boo, and I like Boo because I said he's like, Pepe is like Boo. He's just kind of a selfish jerk. We were always the fun guys, to, you know, like Daffy Duck. They're just fun to write for because they can just act badly and yet they're not going to learn their lesson, you know, it's what is it in drama? People learn a lesson in comedy. They don't. <laughs> well, and that's what was so funny about it is, you know, you had virtuous characters on the show, but yeah. Blue, who was kind of the primary character, was not one of them. 
Well, yeah, he's the instigator. Without him, you would just have a bunch of nice creatures being nice to kids. Yes. And, you know, yes. That's me. And Boo is a complete instigator of, like, I don't want to do it. You know, he's just a selfish jerk. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. But, with, you know, with a heart. But uh, it was really fun to write, and I, I wish I could have done more. I love working with Lauren and Craig. They're super creative and supportive, and I had a blast. Uh, even stuck in some Star Wars jokes in one, um, which was fun. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's another one that we all watched together as a family. We had a lot of fun. I mean, it, it is. It's just yeah. a fun show, and it's one of those that transcends. Like, it's not. It's not a kiddie show. It's just a great show. Right. Exactly. Well, like the Muppets, it's just fun, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and you know, it's it's there's bad characters, and much more than the Muppet show. I think Pepe now is probably the equivalent of Boo, where he'll sell his friends down the river to make some money, but then feel bad about it, you know, or. But, you know, I think Pepe, if I had my druthers, I'd have him drive more stories. Also, he's done by Bill Beretta, who's, like, an amazing... This was, uh, he played the dad in Dinosaurs. He was in the suit and then uh, realized he actually was a, a, a good puppeteer and he's become an amazing puppeteer. He, he uh, imbues them, just like Jim did with Kermit and Dave Goals with Gonzo. And since Jim passed, is, is having people like that to create new stuff with because... Uh, I think that's the only way the Muppets are going to survive is if, you know, it's it's like Mickey, Donald, and Goofy. Like, <laughs> you're breaking, what are you do you're breaking so up a little Disney. bit. I think I think Skype is oh, angry oh, at us. Uh, we've gone over our time. <laughs> we infuriated the Skype gods. They don't appreciate taking advantage of their free service. Let's wrap this one up. Um, sure. Because we, we will have plenty of time for uh, Muppet Talk at Dragon Con, uh, which is coming yes. up right around the corner. I know. It's like four weeks from now. Yeah, it is it is it is upon us, which is why when I shot you that email, I was like, well, lots of Dragon Con things happening. <laughs> uh, but what do you, for, for the listeners for this episode, what are you up to right now? What are you getting into? talk about sadly um well i mean i'm pitching to netflix and marvel uh, marvel uh, tv and movies netflix tv ideas so i'm waiting to hear on some muppet or a muppet thing <laughs> yeah sorry i can't i can't really talk about any of it because sure, none sure. of it i do have a show coming out in netflix again they won't let us i wanted to promote it at dragon con i was originally going to do a panel on it and netflix said nope we we control our our uh, you know our yeah, that Bo uh, Bo Wait. actually originally had pitched a panel about it, and then yeah. he was like, "Nope, yeah. Netflix said no." Yeah, they put the kibosh on it, so uh, I can't talk. All when it does, I mean, just check out my Instagram or my Facebook page. It's Kirk R. Thatcher on Facebook. I, I'm going to get a web page some point soon, but right now it doesn't exist. So Facebook's the best way to. F- Awesome. And uh, the the last thing was the Muppets Live. We just did it in London, and, and it was successful. And But as of this moment, there's no new live shows coming up. But I'm sure we'll do My opinion, There's that's not official. And don't quote me or say, Kirk Thatcher said there's going to be a live Muppet show in New York. But that's the <laughs> major city. It's either that or Dubai, uh, where they can afford it. Right, right, exactly. New York's an obvious place, but... It's Broadway or something. But anyway, blah, blah, blah. Hey, no, that's good stuff, man. That Muppets Live show, because, uh, they, they, of course, there are clips from it all over the place now. And uh, that's something I would love to see get on. I'm losing you. 
wider. Oh, are you losing me too? Uh, I think I lost you. I can hear you now. Okay. But yeah, you've been I, coming I, in and out a little bit. So we'll... Yeah, too. I will sign off and do this live. <laughs> absolutely. I will see you at Dragon Con. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for coming on and doing the uh, the non-Muppet portion of your career for Needless Things. <laughs> hey, it was awesome. I love the way you uh, let it just happen. That's great. Oh, I, this, is, I mean, this is what I love, man. Conversation. Yep. Well, it's a good thing you practice as a kid with your DJ. Work. Exactly. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I will see you in just a few weeks. All right, take care. Have a good one. Later, man. Bye. You know, it's funny how much of a blessing and a curse Skype is because without Skype, I wouldn't be able to do interviews like that. I wouldn't be able to do stuff with our pal Chad or or even our head of research, Ryan, because he's out of state. Uh, So it's an invaluable tool for me. But at the same time, it can be very frustrating when things like that happen. When, Because uh, at the end there, I'll tell you guys right now, I did a lot of editing on the last probably 10, 15 minutes of that, ep- of that uh, conversation. Because Skype just started going in and out and uh, Kurt couldn't hear me and I couldn't and I and you couldn't hear him. And I had to go in and, and kind of do some splicing. How are you at splicing? Uh, if you know that quote, find me at Dragon Con and I'll buy you a beer. I'm not even kidding. If you see me and you can tell me where how you at splicing comes from, I will buy you a beer on the spot or from the nearest spot, I guess. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I had, I had to I had to really work with that to to make that last part listenable. But the rest of it was fantastic, right? I cannot wait to meet him in person. Uh, I will. Uh, avoid my usual celebrity shyness and ask him to take a picture with me. Uh, and, and we're going to do a live panel. I hope, I hope the scheduling works out because Kirk is just freaking awesome, man. I, I just love talking to him and I can't wait like live conversations. And that's the other thing about Skype is it's just not as good as a live conversation. There's certain cues, physical, uh, body English type stuff that you miss. Uh, it's just not the same. And, and I do the best I can, but live, you guys, you're not going to want to miss this one. So stay tuned. Uh, keep an eye on the Dragon Con schedule and on my schedule to find out what's going to be going on. And i got to get back to it. So that's it for this week. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vicks employee. Love you. Mean it. Uh-huh.